1: Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Later in the show, we'll talk about Black Lives Matter versus the LAPD. A new official report in Los Angeles says the police violated the law by attacking and arresting BLM marchers in last summer's protests. Civil Rights Attorney Carol Sobel will explain. But first... One of the Senate seats being abandoned by a Republican is in Ohio, where Rob Portman is throwing in the towel. Can Democrats win that seat? Steve Phillips thinks they can. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White, and he's the founder of Democracy in Color. That's the organization with the best data-backed plan on how Democrats and progressives can take back the country. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, And he writes for the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and The Nation. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, Ohio is going to be hard for the Democrats. Unlike North Carolina, which will also have an open Republican Senate seat, Ohio has not been divided 50-50 recently. Ohio, in fact, for the last decade, has elected only one Democrat to statewide office. He's one of our heroes, Senator Sherrod Brown. The last time they elected a Republican governor was 2006. A lot of us think of Ohio as a Rust Belt state where the challenge for Democrats now is to win back the white working class people who voted for Trump. In this view, the reason Ohio Democrats can't win is because white Ohioans think the party is too closely aligned with people of color. What do you
2: think? Well, that's has not worked right for the past decade, as you lay it lay it, lay it, lay it out. And it's interesting, as uh, you know, I'm from Ohio. and you know, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, proud Cleveland sports fan to this day. I think I'm, I'm same I'm wearing my Cleveland Cavaliers shirt. You, you, casually, I, I, so. I
1: see it here on the Zoom screen.
2: So I, there's two there's two things. So Obama won Ohio twice, and so that's a key piece. And that's what I'm, I was trying to lay out in my analysis is that fundamentally across the country and in multiple states and in some ways you could argue that some of the lift is uh uh, you know more difficult in a place like ohio but you still need large numbers of people of color voting voting in large numbers and for the democrat and then you need to be able to get um as many of the as large a share of the white vote that you can get which is always going to be a minority of the white vote something we don't actually fully appreciate but one thing that, uh, you know, if you even go back to 2004, John Kerry would have won Ohio and the presidency if he had gotten Obama's margins with black voters. Wow! So Obama had like 96 percent, Kerry had like 88 percent. And so the prescription for inspiring enthusiasm and unanimity among African-American voters is very different than what you need to do in terms of trying to attempting to woo those Trump voters who all of this empirical data shows are driven by what uh, Joy Reid calls uh, demographic panic, racial resentment and fears. And so how are the Democrats supposed to appeal to that grouping if that's what's driving them? If, if you can't out racist the racist sentiments, you've gotta be able to appeal to people and move them to a higher place and a, higher, and a better place. And that's the only way things have actually won outside of what I would argue is the unicorn um, of Sherrod Brown, who even himself has not won a majority of the white vote.
1: I learned from your piece that Hillary Clinton got only 33 percent of the white vote. How did Biden do with white people in Ohio compared to Hillary?
2: So Biden got 39 percent. Obama got about 41 percent or so. That's what I'm saying. It's always been. Was it um, Lyndon Johnson said to have famously said after signing the Voting Rights Act, we probably lost the South for a generation, is that ever since the civil rights movement, the majority of whites have never supported Democrats. And so no president's got a majority of the white vote, not even, you know, Southerner with a draw, Jimmy Carter, not even Southerner with a draw, Bill Clinton. So this notion that you're going to get that majority of that population is has no empirical data at all, but supporting it. And so then you come to the question of, One could say Hillary only only got 33%, but you could also say she did get 33%. Yeah. And so what does that mean in an election that, you know, Trump is, you know, winning and he has all the uh, momentum and his strong, you know, white nationalist appeal, still 33% of whites voted for the Democrat. So there's something different that appeals to that grouping of people. There are some, and I would argue enough. Whites who will respond to and actually want to live in a multiracial democracy and are and, and supportive of racial justice. And that's enough to actually win if you maximize turnout of voters of color.
1: The last time we talked here, you emphasized the importance of a sustained grassroots organization with a long term perspective. Of course, the best example of Stacey Abrams, New Georgia Project. Is there anything like that in Ohio right now?
2: There's not that that type of an entity, and that is one of the challenges. And so in these states that have gone through these types of changes, and so, yeah, I may have talked before, I'm working on a new book with the new press, How, How to Win the Civil War, and I'm looking at case studies of places that have flipped. So Virginia, Arizona, parts of Texas, Georgia, all of them have had a strong uh, civic engagement organization with a dedicated long-term leader there who has done work over the course of a decade. And so it's a bit of a chicken and egg issue. So are the donors going to invest in that type of work, or are they going to continue to do television ads? They're going to try to uh, convince the Trump voters of the errors of their ways. So they don't have the funding base to sustain that, but there is not, to my knowledge, a comparable organization, but there certainly needs to be, that has. So one of the New Georgia projects, This is group, has a presence in every single county in the entire state of Georgia. There's got to be something in every county within Ohio to be able to find those progressive Democrats. I would argue that that 33 percent that Hillary that supported Hillary could probably boosted up to around 36, 37 percent if you had a meticulous, methodical voter turnout operation.
1: And Obama, I understood from your piece, did have a huge staff on grassroots operation. Remind us how that worked.
2: Yeah, so Obama invested heavily. Actually, one of my friends, Jen Brown, was one of the, the people running that operation. They had 800 staff people doing wow. field work within, within Ohio. And so with that scale of operation, you can have people in every single county, in all the different cities who are doing the door-to-door work. Getting, identifying voters, following up with them, getting them out to the polls. But it's that scale of investment and that scale and scope of staffing that's going to be necessary. And that's what I'm trying to get people to see is it's not about coming up with a fancy or a magical vocabulary set that's going to convince people who are afraid of people of color that, that the Democrats are a better hope for them. It's about doing the unsexy, nitty-gritty work of putting resources and hiring people who can go door-to-door and identify our supporters.
1: And then there's a question of the message. Sherrod Brown has argued for a long time, including on this program, that he has succeeded because he has a message that Ohioans want to hear about, and that is the dignity of work. He poses... This, frankly against the hedge fund guys and the CEOs. And he means to highlight the common ground between all people who work, people of color, women and white working class people.
2: Yeah, no, Sherrod is the example of who has been successful. And, you know, it's, it's actually ironic that, and you know, that's why I think that the underlying appeal of the, for the Republicans is in fact, this level of uh, racial resentment. What does Donald Trump represent or offer to working people from his Fifth Avenue and, you know, born into privilege background? And then his first policy proposal is a massive tax cut for the wealthy. So this notion that somehow Trump is a champion of working people has no basis to it, particularly when you look at the majority of people of color are working people. And so if it's just a working issue, then why aren't they actually supporting him? So there's no, so, so what, what Sherrod is showing is that there is a way to have common ground. I remember when um, Jesse Jackson's running for the president, he used to talk about when the, when, the, when, the, when the factory turns off its lights, you can't tell what color somebody is, right? And so there is a level of potential for common ground and to highlight that you there is more economic in common, with other people of color than there is with the billionaires and billionaires at the top of the economic spectrum. And so that also has not been a uh, policy agenda that people within the candidates have been able to make, uh, put forward an argument on Ohio yet.
1: And let's talk a little bit more about the Republican side here. There is big Republican money, tens of millions of dollars already backing J.D. Vance for the Republican nomination for senator. He's the guy who wrote the bestseller Hillbilly Elegy, which is about poor whites in Appalachia. The GOP Senate race in Ohio will be a test of who's the biggest Trump fan. But Trump himself, of course, is not going to be on the ballot. And you think that's really
2: important. Yeah, well, we certainly saw that in Georgia, right? And that the untold story of this election is the extraordinary turnout that came out for Trump, actually. So if you look at people talk a lot about South Texas and how it was Trump making inroads with Latino voters down there, et cetera. And they're they're arguing that argue, slogans like defund the police actually hurt the Democrats and that people defected from the Democratic ranks to vote for Trump. But Biden increased his vote by 8 percent in Hidalgo County on the, the border of Texas. So if he's if Democrats are shedding votes, how does his vote go up? Trump increased his vote by 40%. So pretty much every panicked white person within the country who didn't want to see demographic change came out to support Trump. And that was how he made it so close to so many different areas, how he increased his numbers, right? Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. So you had that whole dynamic going on, but in Georgia on the runoff election, when Trump was not on the ballot, and Democrats sustained high turnout. Then they won by an even larger margin. And so that is, I think, the underappreciated dynamic of this is that clearly, I mean, Trump was able to whip people into a frenzy that they would went down to murder the vice president of the United States at the Capitol, their own Republican vice president of the United States. So absent him being on the ballot and the intensity of that situation, then you revert to a more normal voter turnout operation where you, with a highly organized, disciplined effort, you can get consistent turnout of of the, of the democratic coalition. And that's what we saw in the Georgia runoff election and the Republican uh, turnout did dip and this is going to be the dynamic of the next few years. What happens post Trump and is there going to be this, what politics and what leaders, and is there going to be the same level of response of responsiveness to that white nationalist message?
1: And finally, let's talk about the candidates here. Do you have a recommended candidate for the Democrats in Ohio?
2: No, I'm still taking, uh, uh, trying to see what the field is going to look like. You know, there's been talk about, you know, some potential Congress members of color, people of color potentially getting into the mix. I and mean, what I mentioned in my piece, which, you know, hopefully he'll grow and mature if he winds up running. But Tim Ryan is the person people have been putting forward. But it really is the same old playbook that Democrats have been executing on before, really trying to be a uh, Republican light. And that does very little to mobilize and inspire and galvanize the coalition that you're actually going to need. And so that's where I think things have yet to shake out within Ohio. But ideally, you're going to have somebody who can be uh, inspirational and galvanizing to the and that's something people will appreciate as well. Progressive whites are going to vote for the Democratic nominee. So there's this notion that, well, we can't afford a person of color because we're going to lose votes. But actually, you'll get more votes from enthusiasm, people of color, and those progressive whites are still going to be there. So we have to see how it shakes out. And I don't think the field is settled yet. But that's what we're looking for is somebody in that tradition of what Obama was able to achieve in winning Ohio twice.
1: Steve Phillips, you can read his piece on how the Democrats can win Ohio at the nation.com. Thank you, Steve. Always good to have you on the show.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Return with us now to last summer, when Black Lives Matter marchers filled the streets everywhere in America, including Los Angeles, and where the L.A. Police Department violated the law by attacking and arresting BLM marchers. That's what a new report commissioned by the L.A. City Council has concluded. For comment, we turn to Carol Sobel. She's a civil rights lawyer and advocate. She's one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit about violent abuses of power by the L.A. police during last summer's protests. She has repeatedly sued the city of L.A. for violating the rights of the homeless population. She spent 20 years working for the ACLU in L.A. In 1997, she left the ACLU to start her own law practice. She also serves on the board of directors of the National Police Accountability Project. Carol Sobel, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start with the official report to the LA City Council and some of the worst offenses, which I thought some of the worst offenses by the LAPD were the way they handled mass arrests. What did the police do there?
3: Well, they did a couple of things. First of all, they decided they would um, arrest people for violating the curfew. That is an infraction under the Los Angeles Municipal Code. As a matter of law, It violates the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution to put somebody in jail for an infraction. An infraction is not a jailable offense at any time. So why, if you are citing people at the outset for an infraction, you have no ability to put them in jail. They did that, I think, clearly because they wanted to get people off the streets and not for any other reason they arrested hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, They put in the curfew mainly at that point because they were unprepared. And why they were unprepared is just a mystery to all of us. It isn't like we have not seen mass demonstrations. So the first night, I think almost everybody was arrested for a curfew violation. Some might have been arrested for failure to disperse. They handcuffed them. They wrote out citations. They stuffed the citations in people's belts and in their pockets and said, we're going to release you in a few minutes and let you go. They held them in handcuffs for about an hour. Then they came back and said, sorry, we're going to take you and book you. So now they had hundreds of people. They had no capacity to book them. And they put them on buses. This is the height of the pandemic in June. They put them on buses, closed, close quarters, um, no masks on the officers, Um, They pulled people's masks off their faces to create exposure. No water, no bathroom access. People were urinating on themselves. The handcuffs were tight and they didn't care. Now, you might say that, well, this was unexpected and it was a couple of hundred people. So, you know, how would the uh, LAPD be prepared for this? in 2011 when they removed the occupy protesters from city hall lawn they had several hundred people they were unprepared then they did the exact same thing that was the first time we experienced the large mass arrest with no water access no bathroom access being held in handcuffs then i think it was in a concrete on the floor of a concrete garage and that was an event they had planned for for two months <laughs> So so I don't think that saying this was a spontaneous, unexpected event changes it. Because once you settled the Occupy case, you should have said, okay, we might need to arrest a couple of hundred people at the same time again. And how are we going to process them? So let's go fast forward to the Ferguson protests in 2014. They arrested a couple of hundred people. They brought in a mobile field force booking system so they have these they have mobile bookings and they they run my clients on Skid Row all the time and they know who has an outstanding warrant they can do all that in the field when they want to
1: another big problem was the police use of weapons that caused serious injuries the official report to the city council on the protest discusses the LAPD use of something called the 40 millimeter less lethal weapon. It shoots something they call sponge rounds, which are intended to, quote, incapacitate but not kill. Several people have sued after being seriously injured and hospitalized by these 40-millimeter less lethal rounds. The L.A. Times posted a video, police body cam video, of a protester being shot in the head by one of these while he was trying to run away. This was not downtown, but on... uh, May 30th on Beverly Boulevard, east of Fairfax, outside CBS TV City. The victim was a 24-year-old former Marine who was hospitalized for four days, two of them in intensive care. What's your opinion of the 40-millimeter less lethal weapon?
3: Well, just to to be clear about that particular case that you raise, the police who shot him say it was an accident. They were aiming for someone behind him. And that points out the problem of these weapons. They are very precise weapons. They hit who you shoot at. Um, They are not used, they're not meant to disperse a crowd. They are, as you say, meant to incapacitate. No less lethal weapon is supposed to be, have impact above the waist because it could strike a vital organ, it could cause a heart arrhythmia, it could cause a brain bleed, as in the case of the gentleman you talked about, it could kill someone. Um, I think the hallmark of the LAPD using less lethals in these situations is that they are totally untrained. And in this instance, they are responding to a demonstration that is highly critical of the police. So they're being asked to set aside their emotions and their biases. And what's clear is they, they didn't do that and they couldn't do it. Um, so one of the things that we think is really important is uh, that the le- use of less lethals in this situation be restricted. But we have a couple of people who were injured when the police shot those 40 millimeter rounds into a crowd of protesters who were running away. So I'll tell you what the training was in this instance. In 2018, they apparently did um, uh, incident control and de-escalation training. Everybody had this three or four hour unit. Some people were trained on the 40 millimeter. That was about one hour, less than one hour. Some people were just given the instruction manual and the weapon (laughs) (laughs) and said, shoot, (laughs) shoot. Oh, um, what One of the other things that, that some of the officers said, well, the 40 millimeter has a sight on it and the sight is three inches above the barrel. So that's why we hit people in the head. Wrong. Because from the waist to the top of your head is more than three inches. So it's every excuse in the book. I will tell you that the two people who shot the, the Marine have been on the force 15 and 18 years, I believe. They, they would have gone through the 2018 training But they have said that they had no training. And I think part of that is that some all people got was uh, a booklet and said, you know, and a simulator. Um, And so they didn't understand what this was. And people, you know, officers have said they got handed this weapon on the morning of the protest. They had no idea how to use it.
1: And then there's the police use of batons. We call them clubs. The official policy, I learned, is that officers can use batons to push people in large crowds they are trying to disperse, but they are allowed to hit people with batons only when those individuals present a danger. Have I got that right?
3: Yes, you have that right. And the the viral video on all of this, I disagree with the report on this because the report said they didn't find any evidence of of violations of policy on the baton, the viral video about the May 30th protest of Black Lives Matter at Pan Pacific Park, the officers are seen whacking people, not pushing it. the The pushing is a jabbing motion, but in order to do that, you have to have a place where people can go. And people were surrounded by the police, so there was nowhere for them to go, and yet the police were whacking them in the shins and um, and wagging them in the arms um, and literally strikes like you were you were, you know, going to hit a baseball. Those kinds of strikes are clearly barred. Uh,
1: the biggest problem with the strategy the police leadership ordered for many people was that they didn't distinguish between the peaceful demonstrators and what the report calls criminal elements who were throwing objects, creating violence or looting. The police arrested and detained hundreds, eventually thousands, of peaceful demonstrators and didn't do enough to arrest the people who were violent or the organized looters who were taking advantage of the police attention to the peaceful demonstrators.
3: You know, if it weren't um, so sad, it would be funny. It was like a Keystone cop movie, watching the videos of the police with protesters sitting cross-site in the street, chanting, they were, you know, very, very peaceful. And a block away, not even that sometimes, were all these looters. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, how about putting officers on that street and having fewer officers surrounding the people sitting cross on the street peacefully? So here's what Chief Moore said at a press conference when that the video of that event in particular went viral. Chief Moore said, When we are doing a task, we can only focus on that task at the time. And so, as many of us said, one reporter said, really, chief? Shouldn't you have focused on the looters then (laughs) and let people continue to march through the streets chanting? Um, The looters were completely unattached to any protest activity. If you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, maybe what you could do is walk and let the gum chewing wait till later. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's just a a totally uh, unacceptable excuse and a uh, terrifying example of how misplaced the police effort was, because their focus was on their enemies and their enemies were the protesters.
1: You know, I have to say, you and I have been doing these interviews on the radio for a long time now. In 2000, when the Democratic National Convention was in L.A. downtown and there were protests there, you were working as an official observer when the LAPD attacked demonstrators. uh, um, And uh, I remember asking you in a live on-air interview, what was it like to be shot between the eyes by a police rubber bullet? You probably remember that incident.
3: Uh, I remember that incident very well. Um, It was terrifying. I... I I didn't know what had happened. That was the first time the LAPD used rubber bullets against protesters. Another woman who was on top of a flatbed truck, she lost an eye. And had, they, uh, had the bullet that struck me, uh, it struck me right between the eyes at the top, the bridge of my nose, had that bullet been a half an inch either way, I would have lost an eye. Um, so I was really lucky. All I had, in addition to a pretty bad concussion, was a fractured, a subdural fracture of the nasal cavity, which gave me the most excruciating sinus headaches for for probably um, six months after that. Um, but but I was I was lucky in that particular instance for the woman who lost her eye and for me. We were the two most serious injuries I think in 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 two thousand the officers were not properly uh, well they were trained they they knew they were supposed to shoot the rubber bullets at the ground they shot at our heads and i actually have a um, a photograph in my office he actually captured the moment of the officer pointing his gun up at this woman mm-hmm. and so i keep that in my eye along with uh, in my office along with a picture of my um, my injury to um, remind me uh, what I do, but just to 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 let your listeners know that night, the reason I wasn't at the front line at that point when I got shot from 80 feet away by an officer across Olympic Boulevard, the reason that I was not at the front line was because I already had a concussion because an officer on horseback had, had whacked me in the back of the head with a baton and two horses had trampled me. So I was trying to avoid injury standing 80 feet away, and I got shot between the eyes.
1: And you may recall, you may recall that uh, after the LAPD Rampart scandal in 2001, the LAPD was put into receivership by the Department of Justice. We had a federal judge overseeing the LAPD for 12 years, one of the longest consent decrees in American history. Under the consent decree, the LAPD agreed to undertake dozens of reforms to check officers' conduct and subject the department to regular audits by a monitor. That ended in 2013, eight years ago. In the process, we got a new reforming police chief, Charlie Beck. They made a big deal about recruiting people of color and and women. We were told then the LAPD had changed.
3: So now... We are back to um, the the dispute that I have with some of my friends, Connie Rice in particular, is whether we are back to Daryl Gates, whether we are back to Bernie Parks, or whether we are back to Ed Davis. <laughs> pick, pick your evil here. 35 years later, we're back here again. They have shown over and over they cannot do it.
1: Well, the L.A. Times reported on this story, quote, lawsuits drove much of the meaningful change the LAPD has implemented after heavy handed and undisciplined responses to past protests, close quote. Right now, you're one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit against the city of L.A. Uh, Tell us about that lawsuit.
3: So Black Lives Matter is uh, a lawsuit about the um, uh, the events of basically May 29th. I think it's the first night in LA through um, June 3rd when they when the city stopped the curfew and stopped uh, the mass arrests. These were the George Floyd protests, and um, there were about around 4,000 people arrested, and we've alleged that all of them had their rights violated when they were uh, arrested and held for hours on these buses. Buses with no air filtration, no ventilation. Um, The windows were deliberately kept closed. Everybody was handcuffed. People's hands were turning blue. People still have nerve damage from it. Um, There were no bathrooms. I know the police are saying that well people were only held on average one or two hours that simply isn't true some of the people who were arrested in one area of the city such as Hollywood were driven out to Van Nuys anybody who drives in Los Angeles knows that would take you longer to get out there when some of the people were driven out to Van Nuys and there was or, or some other place in the valley there was no room there to do this so they were driven down to the harbor <laughs> And people remained on the bus driving around the city. You know, a lot of people were brought to closer locations. So we are seeking damages and we are seeking change. Uh, We've also moved to limit or prohibit the use of less lethals. We think that 40 millimeters have no place in this and that um, uh, there's no reason to shoot people, uh, to disperse them. We are challenging the fact that people were kettled, which is the the term that we use. And it comes from actually how the British policed the Irish. Um, It was the Black Kettle. They would surround them um, with police, and that's where the term comes from. We are challenging uh, all of those things. We are challenging the fact that people were taken into custody when they should have been released on an infraction. And as we've said to the, to the Los Angeles Times, which asked us for an estimate of the value of the case, we think this case is, is, is probably going to cost the city about $40 million. And that's a very modest amount. For, for everybody and some people were very seriously injured. We'll be negotiating those injuries separately as we did in the May Day case. One woman had her jaw fractured. Uh, people were, as you said, pointed out earlier, people were hospitalized with head wounds. The, the Marine it has a separate case, but we have other people in our case who were hospitalized with head wounds. And it is, uh, it's just um, stunning to me that we could be here again, The other thing, uh, and I just want to make this really clear, is that we've litigated over and over, is the dispersal order. The dispersal order has to be heard. You have to give people a legitimate chance to leave and tell them how to leave. And this was the core issue in the Ferguson case, that the inexperienced incident commander there um, was... uh, just arrived, and five minutes later, gave a dispersal order that uh, was totally inaudible for almost everybody who was there. Um, and when people thought they were complying with it, he decided they weren't complying, and so he started chasing them and had the police chase them. And you know, I think most of us, if the police start chasing you, your instinct is going to be to run. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then it sort of it sort of compounds from there. So we thought that that after that you know, it would be a little bit differently. And in one of life's small ironies, um, the city paid the settlement in the Ferguson protest case from 2014, the day after George Floyd was
1: murdered. Carol Sobel, she's one of the civil rights attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in its lawsuit against the LAPD. Carol, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today.
3: I hope the next time we talk about something different, we don't have to come talk about this again. Okay, (laughs) Okay. thank you.
1: One more thing. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for nation newsletter subscribers, written by the books and the arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, art, music, and film will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to our new thought-provoking and agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash booknewsletter. That's thenation.com slash booknewsletter, all one word. Subscribe today. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.